The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is the, the man, the myth, the man behind 42 Macro, Mr. Darius Dale. Darius, introduce yourself to the audience for those who are not familiar with you. Who are you? What's your background? How did you get involved in markets? And uh, why 42 Macro? <laughs> <laughs> why 42 Macro? So I uh, appreciate everyone for joining us. Um, this is always a pleasure to connect with the audience. Uh, Michael, I think you do phenomenal work. Uh, keep up the good work, my friend. Uh, but anyway, uh, just uh, everyone... I'm Darius Dale. I'm the founder and CEO and, uh, and chief, uh, chief plumber, chief uh, lunch maker, chief uh, internet technician of 42 Macro. You know, we're a small but growing uh, investment research uh, shop focused on, you know, I'm going to steal a line from my buddy Adam Taggart, uh, who I recorded with yesterday. Uh, we're, we're really focused on uh, narrowing that asymmetry uh, between the informational advantage uh, that, you know, top institutions on Wall Street have, uh, many of whom are my clients. Uh, and you know, regular investors like media view on this uh, on this spaces. Okay, so so let's um, let's go right to the heart of the matter. So uh, you, I know you want to focus on liquidity and where we are in terms of the business cycle. Uh, first of all, let's uh, define for the audience what the hell liquidity is. That's a term that's thrown around a lot. I'm not sure if people really understand what liquidity in practice means. So let's go basic. What is liquidity, and uh, why does it matter? It's it's two things. So I'll start with the kind of quantitative technical definition of liquidity, which is how easy it, it is to get, uh, you know, to sort of get in and out of positions without, you know, kind of crossing the bid or offer or the midpoint of the, of the price in the, in the market. And the reason we care so much about the kind of liquidity that you're all here to hear about is because that kind of liquidity makes it very easy for that process to occur. And moreover, not only does it make it very easy for that process to occur, it makes it very easy for investors to sustain higher and higher prices because they have more and more capital, cash, however you want to call it, to leverage, you know, if you're working at a leveraged financial institution, to sustain those prices and buy at higher prices. I mean, these high prices don't just come out of nowhere. The money needs to be to be to be there to support the, the high prices. And so when we think about this kind of, you know, esoteric, squishy concept of liquidity, you know, I think of, I think it's a very important to kind of differentiate uh, between private sector liquidity and public sector liquidity. That's something we do very uh, specifically and and religiously there at Forty Two Macro. Um, on the public sector side, you know, clearly central bank balance sheets and the you know, amount of liquidity that is you know effectively coming from central bank balance sheets 
some folks, some likes to focus on reserves. We obviously have our own metric that's quite popular. I'm sure everyone knows it's underneath repeated in terms of the amount of liquidity that's coming from the public sector. You know, and we can obviously net out uh, the, the confluence between the Fed and Treasury or the, you know, the Fed and Treasury um, counterparts in other economies. So that's sort of public sector liquidity. The private sector liquidity and liquidity we've all been trained to focus on over the last kind of six weeks or so, or many of you, <laughs> this is something we look at all the time, but uh, you know, many of us have been trained to focus on over the past six weeks or so is the concept of public sector liquidity. You know, this is money in the real economy that allows either you know, real households or financial institutions to, you know, lever up and buy capital assets, uh, whether they be stocks, credits, or houses or cars. Um, and that liquidity um, is usually a function of how much risk tanking, risk appetite, and regulation uh, is, um, you know, kind of hitting the banking sector at any given moment. So we can, uh, we can unpack any of those avenues of liquidity to kind of give you a sense of what's happening in real time, what's been happening, and what's likely to happen on a go-forward basis. Yeah, and I, and I, th- I think the key thing is that there's there's almost differences of liquidity seemingly daily. So I'm with you. I, I saw the Bitcoin movement, the entire crypto space movement, and then the round trip that happened very quickly. I, I think there's a difference between liquidity and then uh, frictionless trading, right? So money sloshing around is different mm-hmm. than the ease with which it's moving because it's just easier, right, to trade in and out of different areas, especially commission-free in today's world. Where are we mm-hmm. in the in the liquidity cycle for the private sector? So I see all the same things probably that you do, which is that uh, it's cliche, but there's a lot of money on the sidelines, even though money supply you know, has been dropping. Uh, where are we on this liquidity cycle for the public and private side? So uh, great question, my friend. And, and spoiler alert. And, and so uh, before we even I answer that question, I did want to clarify. The reason I, I brought up the, the point about liquidity, market liquidity, is because you tend to have adverse market liquidity when actual liquidity, the liquidity we care about because it leads the market liquidity, is poor. And vice versa, you know, you have um, you know, positive market liquidity, very, you know, very it's very easy to get in and out of positions and very easy to levitate markets at higher and higher prices because liquidity is abundant and plentiful and everyone's um, you know, got access to it. So that that's why we care about that. You know, that's why I started there, because ultimately we need to relate this stuff back to prices. At the end of the day, we can't buy central bank balance sheets or M1, what we're trying to do is buy, buy assets and, uh, and profit from the financial markets. So that's why I started there. But I, I see your point, my friend. So in terms of where we are with the, um, the private sector liquidity, I assume you uh, are talking about uh, the United States of America. Uh, I don't know too much about Filipino uh, liquidity, but you know it is what it is. So um, right now, it's, it's, it, we're very clearly in a liquidity cycle downturn, have been uh, for several quarters now. It's obviously gotten worse. Um, so we'll start if you just look at, you know, deposits at commercial banks here in America, you know, they're contracting it around, um, they're actually on a max drawdown basis right around down uh, 5.4%. You know, that's one of the sharpest contractions we have ever seen in this time series with data going all the way back to uh, 1973. So, you know, we clearly have some problems in our hands as it relates to private sector liquidity. How we track private sector liquidity specifically is through the lens of narrow money supply or M1 money supply. That's the monetary base, which is bank reserves and, and coins in circulation, plus all the demand deposits in the economy. What we really care about is the demand deposit function, but it's 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 overwhelming feature of that of that um, of that calculation. And M1 in the U.S. economy is currently drawing down at minus eight point three percent on on a max drawdown basis, and this is it's actually eight point three percent on a year over year basis as well. I think it peaked in, in March of last in March of twenty twenty two, and so that eight point three percent is the sharpest. Max drawdown in M1 or a narrow money supply in the history of the U.S. economy. And this data goes all the way back to the late 1950s. 
late 1950s. So uh, we very clearly have a destruction of private sector liquidity that is coinciding with the destruction of public sector liquidity, specifically here in the U.S. And obviously, folks are familiar with our uh, 42 macro net liquidity model. Uh, we've since adjusted that model to counteract the nonsensical claim that emergency lending on the Fed's balance sheet, as we learned today in Bitcoin land, is an actual act of liquidity, uh, is an actual supply of real liquidity to the market, or what we consider to be uh, unencumbered liquidity, liquidity that can be used to speculate in financial assets. Um, and so the, how that calculation goes, for those of you who've been sleeping under the world's most comfortable rock, it's the Fed's balance sheet minus the Treasury General Comp balance, minus the reverse repo facility balance, minus the uh, just, or the emergency lending, again, on the Fed's balance sheet, those sum totals. And that is our approximation of how much you know sort of money that is actually being kind of created by the Fed's balance sheet that is able to be sloshed around the financial sector, both through banks and non-bank lenders, in order to, you know, create leverage in the system, you know, cap by securitized products, so, you know, loans of, you know, high yield credit or et cetera, et cetera, loans of the houses or you know, whatever they may be, you know, that makes um, the financial sector kind of tick and, and, and prices go up. And so that liquidity has obviously been in a downtrend. The steepest part of the slope of the downtrend was very much kind of coinciding with the first three quarters of 2023. And since then, we're still kind of in a, in a narrow downtrend. But the slope is really kind of, um, you know, kind of flattened out really since kind of, you know, September, October of last year. We are close to the lows, however, and I do believe that the markets, if you look at where the price of the S&P, price of Bitcoin, price of Ethereum, you know, kind of your kind of main you know, proxies for risk assets here, those prices are very disconnected from where adjusted net liquidity is. So I would expect to see something that looks like a correction over the next, call it, you know, one to two months. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's we're ready for the big main event that I see coming in the second half of the year. So it sounds like you and I are, are probably of the similar mindset that there's a, a credit event looming, which would be sort of the main event. But I want to go back to this point about liquidity in the context of credit spreads, right? So usually when you have a lot of liquidity, spreads are narrow. Usually when you don't have that much liquidity, credit spreads widen, default risk premiums increase. And I'm with you on all this. And this has been one of the more perplexing aspects of the bond market. But if if the bond market is also a discounting mechanism, why isn't it the case that high yield credit spreads haven't blown out as liquidity has worsened across the board? Uh, so they they have blown out. I mean, we're certainly not on the lows anymore. You know, we're down at you know two three hundred basis points. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, and we're now at around four hundred fifty basis points. So they they have blown out um, with this uh, kind of dis- uh, destruction of private sector liquidity. Uh, we did see a pretty significant uptick in global liquidity that obviously, you know, across markets, no money is fungible. And so, and obviously we had the world's largest and deepest capital markets. So a lot of that global money that was being created, particularly on the public sector side, um, really, I assume found its way in our markets. I mean, we can sort of infer that just by market performance and the correlations between, you know, these various metrics of global liquidity. And in terms of how we calculate global liquidity, specifically, you know, through this kind of public sector, private sector format, you know, we look at the global central bank balance sheet. We amalgamate that uh, in dollar terms. I don't think that's the most accurate way to do it, but it's probably the easiest and most, it's the simplest way to do it. Uh, and the correlations are very much hold. So it's, you know, I don't know that we need to kind of boil the ocean to, to make a better product, although I'm in the process of experimenting with different models, but that's neither here nor there for this discussion. So we have the world central bank balance sheet. You know, this would be kind of our proxy for the global uh, adjusted net liquidity model. Although again, not, not quite the same, but, you know, at least the proxy. We have world narrow money supply, um, so we're amalgamating that across all the major economies. Uh, that's currently at uh, 52.2 trillion 
uh, right now. Sorry, let me let me go back and throw some numbers on on the on the World Central Bank balance sheet. So the World Central Bank balance sheet is currently at thirty point two trillion dollars. If you look at it on a trailing three month basis, at the lows of no of of September of last year, on a trailing three month basis, that figure had declined minus two trillion dollars. At the highs of January twenty twenty three. The, on a trailing three month basis, the trailing three month momentum in the time series was plus one point four trillion dollars. So we had a pretty significant, basically a, a three plus trillion dollar, three and a half trillion dollar swing in the kind of the impulse of global liquidity on a trend basis. You know, kind of from the lows of, of late Q three, early Q four to the to the highs of early Q one of twenty twenty three. Well, the trailing three month impulse, um, as of the most recent data through March, is minus three hundred and thirty two billion dollars. So we now have a negative global liquidity impulse from the perspective of world public sector liquidity. So I'm not too sure that people are acknowledging that, but certainly this is something we track uh, daily here in our research at 42 Macro. With respect to world narrow money supply, that figure um, is $52.2 trillion. And at the lows of October of last year, world narrow money supply was contracting minus $2.7 trillion on a trailing three-month momentum basis on a trailing three month impulse basis. At the highs of January of this year, so really Q1, the global liquidity was plus $2.2 trillion on a trailing three month basis. So we had basically a four to $5 trillion swing in a matter of four months in world narrow money supply on an impulse basis. Markets function on rate of change, not levels. Um, so the, the rate of change of that plus five was, was pretty significant in terms of, um, you know, helping resuscitate, helping, re- helping assets counteract what is very clearly and obviously, you know, you know, what we've been calling a phase one liquidity cycle downturn, at least here in the US, which is the Fed tightening us into a, a slowdown, which ultimately will result in a phase two credit cycle downturn. So part of the reason we have not seen that phase two process play out is, is twofold. One, we've seen a kind of a wave of global liquidity kind of spill out and over and into the system that really, you know, kind of help fight that process. But two, it's something we've been arguing since July, which is the US economy is, is very resilient. For a variety of different factors, and you know, we can go into a myriad of those factors. But the U.S. economy is resilient, and, and asset markets aren't particularly forward-looking. And I can say that with a, a great degree of, 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 you know, sort of ethos when I make that statement, because I, I do believe, certainly on the sell side, that I think I've personally back-tested asset markets better than anyone in the world <laughs> um, in terms of that, you know, putting out academic research on, on that kind of subject. So that what, what I found in, in all of my back-testing processes and models is that. You know, markets don't tend to be more than one to two months uh, forward looking. If you uh, relate the, the rate of change of, of impulses and growth, impulses and in inflation, impulses and in liquidity back to impulses in the market, you know, there's really no correlation at all when you go beyond two to three months. And so all of the correlation is tends to be in, in kind of the one to two month, at most three month time frame. So, you know, our view is that the U.S. economy was likely to remain resilient really through to the end, towards the end of 2023. And as a function of that, we don't really have to price in the big bang that you and I both see coming, uh, Michael, until you know we get to you know kind of let's say Q three, maybe even early Q four. I think it's important to distinguish which market, though, right? Because you've got a tale of two very different markets that are responding to liquidity in different ways. You've got you know large caps, largely tech price holding up, I think, fairly well, while you know small caps in particular. And granted, that's because of the sort of co movement around regional banks. Have gotten just obliterated from you know their highs of the year. Um, is there anything in your studies that would suggest that liquidity is m- more important to small caps as opposed to large cap? Yeah, uh, yeah. So 
it's very clearly when the liquidity cycle is positive. So when you have positive impulses on these metrics, uh, and oh, by the way, I forgot one number, um, going back to the world narrow money supply. Um, I remember we said it peaked at plus 2.2 trillion on a three month impulse basis, uh, in January. That number is now minus 982 billion on a trillion three month impulse basis through March. So, you know, we've had this pretty subsizing shift in both, you know, world public sector liquidity and global private sector liquidity. Um, going back to your question on small caps, the answer is yes. So when the, when the pot, when the impulse is positive, uh, from the liquidity perspective and you pick your liquidity indicator, you're going to get to the same conclusion. Uh, when the impulse is positive, you tend to have positive appreciation or positive price momentum in sort of more pro-cyclical sectors and style factors on a relative dispersion basis to defensive sectors and style factors. You tend to see small caps outperform mega caps. You tend to see value outperform growth. You tend to see you know, uh, you know know high yield credit outperform investment grade credit, uh, both on a spread and price appreciation basis. And so you know, liquidity does matter. It's not the only thing that matters. I think people spend so much time on Twitter, they all kind of coalesce around one factor because it's working at a particular time and then eventually the factor will stop working and you know they're going to need to find some other factors so this is why we do a you know a, a compendium of analysis to sort of understand what is actually driving asset markets at any given time and then ultimately have informed opinions about that you know vis-a-vis our forecasting tools on growth inflation employment cycle etc okay now i'm going to assume maybe i'm wrong that in pre-election years on average liquidity tends to rise that that's one of the reasons why Pre-election years, on average, tend to be you know the strongest of the four-year presidential cycle. I've made this point before that I think we're in kind of a broader melt-up environment, but that you could still have some kind of you know tail event out there. And some people, when I've made this argument around a correction short-term, but still within the context of broader melt-up, and then you know using your words, kind of a main event, they think I'm asking for too much to happen in one year. And I always go back to. In 1987, you had the Dow up 38% at its peak prior to the crash of 87. Then you had the crash of 87. Then you had a Fed pivot. So there is mm-hmm. there is some some parallel, right? Not necessarily you have to have a crash like October 87, but you, know, you can have that kind of sequence all happen in a very compressed 12-month period. Am I off on the idea that we could see something wild like that that really surprises a lot of people? So you got these kind of short-term you know, potential correction risks, then everybody gets screwed, getting bearish at the wrong time. Markets have a run higher, and then comes a big event. So, you know, let's talk about the sequence that you're seeing. Yeah, no, I mean it's kind of in our base case scenario. I think that price level is somewhere around forty three to forty two hundred. Um, that's kind of like the price level we've thought to be the suck everyone back in price, and we've seen this a couple of times. Right, we saw it in August. Uh, we saw it in, um, in the early February. But by the way, we faded both of those movements. It was pretty hard to fade in both of those times, but. You know, is obviously rewarded for fading both of those those rallies. But you know, we've been of the view that markets are going to have a very difficult time in this kind of post midterm election process because, again, that's that's what Michael. You, I'm glad you caught that out. It is the most bullish back test in the history of back tests. I've never seen in in all my years in quantitative, you know, economics and finance for the past 14 years of building models and studying things and 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 all in the this six ways to Sunday. I've never seen anything like this. If you look at the midterm election cycle, I want to say going back to the how many, many midterm elections we've had since 1946, on a median basis, the S&P 500 is up 16% on a 12-month forward basis with an interquartile range of plus 9 to plus 21. Like There's hardly any negative outcomes. 80%, 89% of the outcomes are positive 
uh, in that inner quartile range of plus nine to plus 21. So I've, I've never seen anything like this in my life. So as bears, we are fighting some serious kind of like voodoo. <laughs> I don't really know how else to describe it, but it is voodoo. Uh, but I will say um, there's only two instances in the um, in the sample, which again goes all the way back to the 1946 midterm election. There's only two instances in the sample that occurred where the midterm election occurred during a bear market. And in 1946, uh, the S&P was down 2%, 12-month fort. And in um, on November uh, or November 8, 2018, the S&P was up uh, 14%, 12-months forward. So it's kind of a coin toss in terms of that. But just going back into answering your question on kind of how do I see the sequence of events playing out, uh, as I mentioned, we don't. our models don't suggest that a recession is a high-probability outcome until you get to the latter part of the year. Um, you know, we have about, you know, six or seven different models that we use to kind of pinpoint with, you know, fairly precise accuracy, you know, when a recession is most likely to commence and the modal outcome from those models is Q4. There's a little bit of a tail towards, you know, Q3 and there's, you know, more, slightly more of a tail towards Q1 of next year, but the modal outcome of that distribution is, is Q4. And so going back to everything I said about, uh, you know, market performance and not being particularly forward looking, I don't expect markets to really care about that. Until we get into Q3 of this year, you know, maybe even you know Q4, maybe even early Q4, um, and so I do believe to the point you're making, I think it's very easily markets could continue to chop around or even try to suck you in. You know, let's take say the market sniffs past thirty, you know, forty three hundred later this year. Let's say in kind of the midsummer, early summer. Who knows? You know, maybe we can get there. I'm not saying I, I have a crystal ball on what that ultimate level will be from the from the which point the phase two credit cycle downturn commences. All I'm trying to say is that it's probably going to commence and you're probably not going to be want to be long risk assets, you know, in that time period heading into that event. But it's April 26. And so I don't think you have to particularly worry about, you know, a big market crash now. I think you have at least a few more months to play fun and games on, on the Bitcoin chart like with, like we've seen today. So people hearing this would probably say, well, you know, I guess if we're in this kind of environment where you can see some big swings. This must be a great environment for traders as opposed to those that position. Listen, as much as I myself have gotten a lot of these kind of moves, I think with hindsight, from a condition standpoint, largely right, this sequence has been brutal. You know, you can be right about a regional bank crisis, but if you're off by one week and you happen to be in small caps or out of small caps, it's almost like that's the entire year, right? Given the way that these things are moving. Um, how do you think about sort of somebody putting money to work here? Should they be having more of a trader mindset or uh, are there certain asset classes, maybe gold, maybe Bitcoin itself, where independent of what happens this year, it's going to be on its own track? So great question. I'll answer that um, in two ways. One, if you're a retail investor, um, I say this all the time to our retail investor clients. And, and by the way, all of our clients at 42 Macro receive all the same information. Uh, we don't give super sophisticated presentations to our super sophisticated hedge funds and just assume that our retail investor clients can't can't learn and benefit from that information. So everyone sees the same thing. Everyone gets the same trade ideas. Everyone gets the same portfolio construction guidance. So, but I do, I do give them just more behavioral guidance that it's a little bit different. If you're a retail investor and you're in the middle of a bear market, what the hell are you doing? I mean, seriously, like what? You don't have to participate. I mean, Wall Street's whole marketing message is to convince you that you always have to participate. So that they're always collecting fees on your products, and I don't mean that you know. Obviously, you spared you, Michael. Obviously, you're running a business here, but my, my, you're, my, you're, my you're 100 right. <laughs> my, my my approach is, is a whole different animal. It's it's rotational in nature, not designed to be all constantly in one asset class. Which I mean, that's the frustrating part about last year. It's like treasuries and equities acted the same, right? But 
But you're 100 percent right. I mean, and and there is an incentive because everybody that's running a fund gets a fee every single day that's accrued, trying to keep somebody in. And yes, there's a lot of research around you know time in the market matters more than time out of the market. But you know, the the thing with all these studies around time in the market versus time out of the market is that it's it's missing the discussion around volatility clustering. I mean, that's a whole another dynamic. But anyway, yeah. sorry, it's missing the whole discussion around volatility drag too. What happens when you put a bunch of money to work and it gets cut in half immediately? <laughs> they don't teach you that in, in business school, but you learn that real quick when you start trading. <laughs> you learn that real 100%, quick on the side. 100%. Half the people in this in this room, no offense, that, they have no idea what volatility drag is. I, I encourage everyone to Google that and spend at least five minutes this night uh, just kind of understanding, familiarizing yourself with the concept. It's one of the least talked about aspects of finance, but it's arguably the most important, um, in my opinion. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, kind of getting back to this discussion on investing, you know, with respect to retail investors, I mean, obviously, we're not like overly concerned about a big market crash here in April. I do believe we're probably going to be very overly concerned, certainly by the time we get to the towards the end of Q3. But between now and then, I mean, sure, go out and do what you got to do if you need to be long Bitcoin or Ethereum or, you know, you just can't not buy, you know, Meta or Apple or I don't know what these these companies are doing these days. But my, my, my key takeaway is why? What are you doing? Here's what you need to do in a bear market or what I think you should be doing in a bear market. You know, clearly keeping your strategic uh, investment objectives in, 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 in line with this comment, which is make a ton of money in bull markets. Don't lose a ton of money in bear markets. That, that's, that's literally it. Like as a retail investor, that, that's literally it. If you're trying to do more than that. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. It's because you convinced yourself you're smarter than the market. You're smarter than all these brilliant people spending billions and not not M with the mint with the M, not M as in Mary, B as in Bill. Billions of dollars on research and trading and and all these other resources that are giving them slight edges, you know, that transact on on a, on a day to day, week to week, month to month basis. You're not going to beat them at this game of generating return all the time. You're never going to beat them at this game. I figured that out the hard way, you know, after 18 months of according to macro, and we switched to a systematic uh, portfolio construction process that removed my, um, you know, kind of a <laughs> quote, I'm air quoting right now, to remove my intelligence with air quotes out of that equation. Um, and so that, that's my key takeaway for retail investors is if it's not a bull market, you shouldn't be participating too much because your goal is to make a ton of money in bull markets and put that money away in a bear market until you're getting close to a bull market again. If you're doing something more than that as a retail investor, it's again, you've convinced yourself you're smarter than Jim Simons and you're not. If you're a professional investor, and obviously we have a decent number of professional investor clients as well, our client base is actually quite split down the middle, to be honest, at at the unit level. Um, If you're a professional investor, obviously your job is to compound returns and and not get, you know, not have big drawdowns and not get fired and not lose the seat you're sitting in. And that is hell. And it's like, it's like the worst kind of hell in the past kind of year. Because in my opinion, the bear market was really easy, you know, from let's call it, you know, late Q4 of 2021 to, you know, I would say June of 2022. 
it's been very difficult kind of since then because we've been basically bouncing around in the most violent manner possible between, I, I'm just going to throw you know random numbers out there, let's call it, say, 4,200 on the top side and 3,800 on the bottom side. Obviously, we got to like 4,300 in August. We got to 3,500 in, in October. But by and large, we've been basically violently whipping around you know, in this kind of four to 500 point range in the S&P for a while. And not only have we been violently whipping around in price terms, we've been even more violently whipping around in sector and style factor dispersion terms. And so that, I think, has made it an incredibly challenging environment for trend following strategies to work, for market neutral strategies to work, just general hedge fund, your traditional hedge fund strategies to work. And it's been very, very volatile and very violent. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's been very difficult. I, I can't express enough to you how many annual returns we've had in the past year. I mean, like, you know, we've had a plus 10, down 15, plus 20, down 12, plus 15. I mean, we have like six or seven years worth of returns in like the last year. And so it's made it very difficult for most risk, most investors to risk manage. Obviously, it's been a lot of turnover on the buy side as a function of that. And I don't really see us breaking out of that. And the reason for us not to really materially break out of that or below that is because, again, on the bounce side, we don't have the phase two credit cycle downturn to price in until we get to, you know, let's say one, two, three months ahead of it. And on the top side, we still are dealing with this U.S. resilient U.S. economy that is contributing to some very real resilient U.S. inflation. And that resilient U.S. inflation, if you look at it on our score, you know, we're still compounding at 4.8% on a three-month annualized basis for core PCE. If you want to strip out all the stuff that consumers care about and sleep in and eat and all that good stuff, Supercore PCE is compounding at 4.3% three-month annualized. Median CPI at 6.8%. Trim mean CPI at 5.8%. Why do I use these statistics? Well, these are the most underlying core dressed-down versions of inflation that you could possibly get to to kind of see what the real underlying truth in, in price changes are. And the reality is we still 2 to 3x the Fed's you know, price stability target um, in a lot of these metrics and are going to remain, you know, at least 2x uh, in terms of the Fed's 2% uh, price stability target until we get into a through recession. There is no, no, zero, no history in any time series of core inflation breaking down considerably before a recession. None. So we, we got to go through the soup that the Fed wants to achieve its, its objective. Uh, by the way, you, uh, you blew my mind saying that these uh, anonymous FinTwit accounts are not better than um, Jim Simons. Uh, I think <laughs> that was really mind blowing. Uh, no, I'll tell you what, I say that, I say that jokingly, but I'm not joking. It's like, this is the insanity of, of, of FinTwit and Twitter. It's like part of my language, fucking people. Are you kidding me? Like you're exactly right. There, there are people that are throwing severe, significant dollars at trying to identify anomalies, trying to figure out what happens next to markets. You think some, anonymous account that's sharing some bear porn or bull porn it really knows what's going to happen next we're all coming from the same point of view nobody can predict the future there's a lot of money that's trying to figure out the signals that get you to the future but i, I don't know man it's just uh it, this whole fintwick community thing it, it drives me bonkers the way that that people seem to think that they have special knowledge when uh, there are literally billions of dollars trying to figure out uh, how the market works. Yeah, no, nah, and and I wouldn't, I, I would, I would characterize it a different way. I'm glad that we have so many people participating and getting empowered and figuring out what the hell to do with their money because I think we also figured out over the course of time. Obviously, one of my you know investing idols figured this out and published a book about it, which is the professionals don't know what the hell they're doing half the time either. 
<laughs> you know, let's be totally honest. You know, I, I get a lot of stuff wrong. I get a lot of stuff wrong. I got my face ripped off in the second half of last year. It was brutal. That was probably the worst period of performance in my 14-year career. Um, just, you know, just just getting whipped around last year, towards the end of last year. It was, it was tough. You know, so we got to all be humble about this whole process. No matter where you are on that kind of, you know, S-curve of knowledge and, and ability with respect to trading, with respect to investing, with respect to managing your own behavioral biases, you know, no matter where you are on those S-curves, you still have to acknowledge the fact that it's a damn steep S-curve, you know? And just just be humble about it and try to do the best you can with the tools that you have or the tools that you can access and purchase, you know, from guys like myself or Michael or anyone else, you know? Speaking about uh, getting whipped around, I'd argue that one part of the marketplace which has not been whipped around as much and has been, for the most part, pretty consistent in the trend and in the message is what you had, I think, retweeted with a comment, which is, uh, my my focus on lumber, right? Which just has been getting mm-hmm. utterly, utterly obliterated. You know this um, this weakness in lumber. I keep stressing uh, to me is a real big concern. And a lot of people will argue that, well, but look at the home building stocks. Right? They keep on acting strong. The lumber, who cares? It's about the home building stocks. I have not seen any real evidence that suggests that home building equities have predictive power. I have seen evidence that lumber has predictive power because I put a paper out about it. Uh, I'm curious uh, to hear your thoughts on housing in the context of all this, because if we're going to be talking about liquidity, we're going to be talking about credit availability, you have to definitely hit on the number one asset for most people, which is their homes. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, absolutely. I actually wrote a note about that this morning. Housing is, uh, it's unfortunately booming again. <laughs> I know that's not the conclusion people were expecting to hear, but it's, um, but it's, uh, it's, it's the truth and it's, it won't remain the truth because again, we're headed, we're headed for an unemployment cycle. So it's not going to remain the truth. But in this hyper financialized U.S. economy, you know, where the speed of, you know, particularly the, the non-bank financial sector, which dominates, you know, residential lending, you know, that they're, they're, they're lending loans and getting people to close housing deals. I mean, we can see it. I'll just rattle off some numbers. So we, we track kind of five statistics in housing. We track a bunch of 60,000, but kind of like our main dashboard, you know, kind of just like the, the, it, it progresses in terms of, um, in, in terms of a uh, lead to lack, but permits are up 27.8% on a three month annualized basis. Housing starts up 21.4% on a three month annualized basis. Pending home sales up 41% three month annualized. Existing home sales up 41% three month annualized. New home sales up 39% three month annualized. Now these numbers are like not even in the area code of their long term averaging. And so, you know, we're definitely seeing markets respond to positive equity performance that creates risk taking or more risk taking ability or, or at least the bare, the minimum, the desire to take more risk in the, in the shadow banking sector and the non-bank financial sectors to make the, creates a desire for everyone to take more risk. You see a chart of the S&P or Bitcoin up, you want to take more risk. That's, a lot, that's how this stuff works. Favorite. But also as, as a factor is obviously we saw interest rates decline, you know, to the same, you know, we've seen interest rates decline, we're seeing unemployment hang in. And so as a function of those two things in the context, again, of this hyper-financialized U.S. economy, we are seeing just more activity in that space. You know, and I keep saying hyper-financialized, what I mean by that is, you know, we are impressively banked 
And more importantly, we are impressively banked, impressively banked by non-bank, you know, market participants. You know, we have a private non-financial sector debt burden of right around 155% of GDP in the US. And only 33% of that, you know, 155% of GDP comes from actual banks like Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic Bank, Bank of America, et cetera. The rest of it comes from the non-bank lend, you know, non-bank lenders. So mortgage brokers, uh, you know, what else? Hedge funds, credit funds, mutual funds, you know, pension funds, insurance funds, all you know, all these other entities that create credit, you know, whether they be buying securitized products, you know, loans that banks originated, et cetera. But you know, we the 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 system works really quickly now because those agents are much more responsive to market conditions than traditional banks, which are much more responsive to, you know, their availability and cost of capital. But, you know, it's interesting. So, so okay, let's go with that. So uh, housing looks like it's <laughs> accelerating. Yeah, if housing's strong, you'd expect consumer uh, sentiments to be strong, right? Consumer spending is going to be strong. This is what I'm talking about. There's this, we're in this kind of weird environment where there's a lot of disconnects. Lumber's saying one thing, home builders' uh, stocks are saying another. Uh, to your point, some of the housing data is obviously looking quite strong. So, you know, what's to worry about? At the same time, if housing is strong, uh, one would think that consumer discretionary stocks would be outperforming the S&P 500. Not the case, right? Still, you know, breaking down. Retailers against the S&P 500, uh, new relative low. Uh, I think it looks like as of today, you're back to, you know, kind of the uh, 2020 July levels of retailers relative to equities. So, so my, my point is that there's there seems to be a disconnect, right? If housing is not going to break down, and if the housing data is starting to reaccelerate and pick up, it's happening and leaving uh, the areas which are most sensitive to the wealth affects consumers behind, right? And I think that becomes problematic from a signaling perspective. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and by the way, when you when I think we got to define just for the sake of the audience, like what we mean when we say strong, weak, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty much everything that comes out of my mouth is in rate of change terms, is in delta terms. You know, is it getting better or worse? Not necessarily is it good or bad. You know, we're up forty one percent in you know new home sales or in uh, any existing home sales from a very low base. You know, so it's it's still bad in absolute terms. So housing is technically bad. It's just very very strong. It's booming in delta terms. You know, so that that's that. I think that's an important distinction. Um, and the reason we look at you know information this way is because one. The markets care about this. I've backed this. this is one of the many things I've backed this and studied throughout my career. Markets care about the the rate of change and the direction of travel of information more than they care about the level of information. I would argue markets don't really care about the level of information at all. I mean, there's hardly any statistical study you can perform to to get to that conclusion. So that's why we focus on the rate of change. But also, we focus on the rate of change because everyone else focuses on the rate of change. You know, we you know <laughs> many buy side clients you know across the world who all do various forms of what we're doing or you know, whether it be on the macro side or the, you know, the fixed income side and, you know, maybe even on the equity, um, you know, strategy side, you know, everyone kind of cares about the same stuff. So what we're trying to do is make sure we can front run what the other guy's thinking, other gal is going about going to do, you know, it's, you know, so it's, it's, it's part, you know, understanding that this is what matters both the markets, but also this is what matters to other people who are market participants in the market. So that's kind of how we think about things in rate of change terms. So I just want to make sure that, that that's a very important distinction whenever we're having these conversations because people can get lost. Yeah, no, that, that's very good. So I found the uh, the tweet that you retweeted uh, with comment with a, a great video you put out. And I love the respect the x-axis uh, hashtag, by the way. Oh, uh, yeah. My favorite. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I'd love to see that trending, but oftentimes I see butts trending on Twitter, not respect the x-axis. <laughs> uh, and I've been told that's actually politician. That's not a – I don't think that's uh, actually – 
anyway, uh, first of all, let, let's 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 get into that a little bit for uh, the audience. And I I don't think it's news to anybody because this chart has been out there quite a bit. Uh, I've replicated it in different ways, but you know, everyone keeps on saying still in the traditional media, we need uh, the Fed to pivot for markets to go higher. We need lower rates for markets to go higher. You and I both know there's a lot more nuance to that. So lay out the the whole uh, argument for. Uh, how the market uh, historically reacts to Fed pivots and in the context of whether you're in a bear market or bull market, what's the response? Yeah, great call. Great question. So I'm glad you gave that um, context because, you know, you're, I, I saw that your study uh, highlighted a series of um, um, Fed pivots in all market scenarios, I want to say dating back to either it was the 70s or the late 60s or something like that. On the 61. Which is accurate. I think, I think the 61. Yeah, exactly. And I think the, 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 the conclusion of your study is, is very much accurate, which is, on balance, when the Fed pivots from a tightening scenario, it's usually not good. And I followed up to chime in to say, uh, yeah, but my friend, when the Fed pivots in a bear market as a conditional filter, it actually tends to be very good. In fact, it tends to bottom the market. And so we performed a um, big statistical study last summer, uh, you know, kind of at the height of the initial, you know, will they, will they pivot, you know, discussion. Uh, that dates back to all the 17 bear markets that we've had from an all-time high in the S&P 500, dating back to Act 1 of the Great Depression. Um, and there have been, you know, again, there have been 17 with the median drawdown of, of minus 28%. And when we looked at, you know, the date of the Fed pivot relative to the date of the, of the actual market bottom, then we found some pretty interesting conclusions. And by the way, in terms of how the study was conducted, uh, there were three styles of Fed pivot that we observed in, in the analysis. There is the, you know, the obvious pivot, you know, they were hiking and then they start cutting. They were just the, the pause pivot, which is they're hiking and they don't do anything for at least six months. And then there's the, um, the, uh, the, the panic pivot, which is they were already cutting and then something bad happens and they start cutting much faster, bigger clips. You know, it's kind of what we saw in, in uh, 2020. So there's three styles of pivots, but. The one thing that was very consistent across the, the analysis, which is the market tends to bottom right around when they pivot. Uh, in fact, on a median basis, and again, we're looking at 17 bear markets. In fact, there's only 15 actually in the, in the actual conclusion because uh, we couldn't ascertain pivots for the um, 46 to 47 bear market, nor could we ascertain pivots for the 48 to 49 bear market. But the other 15 in the sample, uh, we could. And on a median basis, the market tends to bottom, had bottomed uh, just one month after that inflection in, in the Fed liquidity cycle, you know, going from pause pivot to panic. So that that was pretty that was pretty instructive. But I think what was also instructive is the narrowness of the interquartile range. I mean, interquartile range is the, on the third quartile the market bottoms coincident with the Fed pivot, and on the first quartile the market bottoms only three months after the Fed pivot. And so that to me that was pretty instructive. Obviously, there's some outlier uh, outcomes in the sample if you look at. You know, 2007, 2009, the market bottom 18 months after the Fed pivoted. 2000 to 2002, the market bottom 21 months after the Fed pivot. And in 1980, 1982 bear market, the market bottom 14 months uh, after the Fed pivot. But those are the only three outcomes in the entire 15 bear market sample where there was a meaningful, you know, kind of delay with the to the market outcome. So, you know, obviously anything could happen when you look at it on a go forward basis. But obviously, the number one rule of investing is, is trying to assess probabilities and reassess probabilities and putting yourself in the best in the highest probability outcomes on a, on a you know kind of on a rolling basis as a Bayesian. You know, we don't want to put ourselves in the lowest probability outcomes. You know, anything could happen. 
what's the point of doing research if you're going to skew your decision-making towards the lowest probability outcomes? That's obviously not rational. So one final thing I'll say about this study is that the max value in the study is plus two, which means that the market at, at most bottomed two months before the Fed pivot. And this was during the, um, the 1937, 1942 bear market. That scares me. And it should scare everyone listening to this because, you know, I don't really believe in the invest according to a study or a sample making a new zero percentile or 100 percentile reading, which is, you know, data geek way of saying this time is not different. And so I don't invest according to this time is different. I invest according to the highest probability outcome is that it's going to be somewhere within this bounded range of, 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 of outcomes. And so if, if two is, is likely to maintain the, to make, still be the max variable or, or value in this, in this, in this equation, then it would seem to suggest that October of 2022 was not the ultimate low of the bear market. Because obviously October 2022 was not two months ahead of the Fed pivot. And so that to me is, is, is quite concerning uh, if you believe in the bull case. And, and I, I know I'm not fighting the bull case between now and let's say late Q3. But uh, if you're really a big believer that the market already bottomed, then you know this is, uh, this is spring of 2020, which by the way, I was bullish then. I got into a big fight with my former boss <laughs> for being bullish back then. If you think this is spring of 2020, um, you got another thing coming, unfortunately. By the way, I'm of the the same mind that I shared in the nest that chart that I've showed that thankfully got like 10 million views over the last, you know, four or five months showing the interaction of treasuries against equities and a major drawdown for equities. You know, mm. basically the idea is, you know, you look at the top 20 biggest declines, peak to trough, you know, treasuries 10 out of 20 times make money, longer duration treasuries while equities are going down heavy nine out of 20 times they lose, but they lose a lot less. Last year was the only time in history that treasuries lost more money than stocks in a major drawdown for stocks. But the the assumption in the idea that treasuries failed as the quote-unquote safe haven throughout the drawdown is that the drawdown for stocks is over. So to your point, mm -hmm. if we were to break the lows, which I think would happen under a credit event type of scenario, that's the whole sequence path I myself have been arguing, it could very well be that we look back and that top 20 drawdown chart shows actually that treasuries on a relative basis, we're still a better allocation, right? In other words, if you have another wave lower and treasuries counter this time, well, that could be enough to cause the, the totality of the drawdown on equities to look like 1968 to 1970, where treasuries were down 14% while the SP was down peak to trough 33 or so, right? So mm -hmm. this, this is the thing about the, these sort of definitions around bear markets and bull markets. It, it's all said with hindsight, right? It's like, Nobody really knows if we're in a bull yeah. market or in a bear market. You only you only say we're in a, in a bull market after you've probably already taken out the prior real highs, not the nominal highs, right? The real mm -hmm. S&P adjusted highs. Uh, you know, until then, uh, I, still, I still think we're in a bear market, regardless of you know a, a melt up type of scenario that can maybe push you to nominal highs for a moment in time. Thirty seven to forty two, I said a few minutes ago. Thirty seven to forty two. <laughs> That's a that's 1937 to 1942. You know how people would lose their damn minds if they can't buy Apple for five years. <laughs> they will lose their minds, you know? So this is the point I'm making. You're, you're absolutely spot on. There's plenty of time series history of multi-year bear markets and bonds correlating and uncorrelating and you know, actually do provide that diversifier. We, by the way, we are very much in your camp. We do expect phase two credit cycle downturn to be the part of the bear market where the bonds actually, you know, perform that function in the um in, in in your portfolio, perform that you know defensive function in your portfolio. 
And the reason for this is because we think we're heading into recession. If this, you know, there have been plenty of bear markets that are not associated recession. You know, I mean, it's roughly around. Um, you know, it's actually there. There are plenty of bear markets, but you know, there's way more bear markets than the ones we discussed in our sample. The ones we discussed in our sample were bear markets from a, a prior all-time high on a nominal basis in the S and P 500. There are other bear markets within those bear markets. Like that bear market I discussed in 1947 to 42 probably had like five or six bear markets in it. If you, if you just count like a 20% drawdown from a local high as a bear market, but you know we don't consider that because it's obviously contained within that bigger one. And we've had you know bear markets within this bear market and bull markets within this bear market, but that aren't really true bull markets, right? Um, so I just, you know again, we can argue about this stuff six weeks to Sunday. I think we're kind of arguing nomenclature, and I think we'll lose the audience if we keep going down this rabbit hole. But one thing I will say on going down down to the to the bond point, you know, a lot of folks are sort of like, yeah, but like bonds are kind of rallied, inflation's going to be high in this decade. So you you know, what's the value on a three and a half percent, you know, ten year piece of paper from here? And you know, I, I'm very sympathetic to that view. I think we have one of the more sophisticated um, dynamic factor models that projects, you know, the longer run, you know, trend of inflation. You know, I've, I've had this model vetted by all the top institutions across Wall Street. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, I think it, I think it holds its chops, and you know that model does agree with the general consensus that inflation is going to be high and sticky in this decade, um, or at least over the you know longer term you know uh, longer term forecast horizon. But from a cyclical standpoint, the bond market, had, the money markets, haven't priced in enough easing to kind you know for you know in terms of um, what's likely to happen in the economy over the next twelve to eighteen months. You know, specifically, if you look at, um, you know, the, the Fed funds rate floor through the lens of the OIS market, the option overnight index swap market, uh, which is, you know, tracks the Fed funds rate, you know, that's only pricing in right around, let's call it 200 and 200 quarter, 250 basis points of cuts. And on a median basis during recession, the Fed tends to cut right around 400 basis points. So basically 175 to 150 basis points more than what is currently priced in. And then if you look at it, uh, you sort of, um, you know, winterize that sample down to just the recessions that, um, that, that occur due to Fed tightening, due to monetary tightening. There's a, um, it's, it, the, 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 the median rate cut in cycle in that process is minus 475 basis points. So you could tack on another 175 basis points. So you're talking about the markets either not underpricing a recession by 150 basis points. Or it's underpricing a recession by 225 basis points, you know, relative to previous cycles, relative to previous, you know, credit cycle downturns. And so in our view, from a cyclical perspective, bonds represent a lot of value because they haven't had to price in the phase two credit cycle downturn. No other market has, <laughs> you know, they haven't had to. Uh, but once they have, once they start, then that's when you see the bond prices rally. We'll see probably yields break down to on the 10 year, probably to at least 250. You know, I think 250 is a very reasonable target for. 10-year paper. I think you're kind of in no man's land beyond that because, again, I think eventually the market's going to figure out that the Fed's going to you know, turn the, the liquidity hose back on and the inflation genie is not going to get back down to two and they might change it to three. So I think trying to fight from 250 to, you know, let's say two or one and a half, I think that's a harder fight to fight from a longer-term debt security perspective. But certainly, I think from now, the 250, 225, I mean, you know, just to set it and forget it. We might have to deal with some volatility between now and then because the economy is still resilient, as evidenced by the housing data, as evidenced by the employment data, as evidenced by the inflation data. But it will stop being resilient in, let's call it, two to three quarters. Last question on my end, and everybody here, please make sure you follow uh, Darius Dale and show him support, some uh, some love and support here on Twitter. And obviously, check out his research uh, in general. Uh, with the caveat that I always myself keep going back to this point that nobody can predict the very long term. 
what do you think the odds are that we're maybe most people can't predict the short term? <laughs> no, well, well, no. although, yes, although I would argue the short term is far more observable. I mean, there's a lot of studies around that, right? And that goes back to conditions based mindset. But on the on the on the very long term, right? So, what would you place the probabilities on the idea that we are in a lost decade? Now, I'm saying that in a dramatic way, but let's face some facts. Emerging markets have had more than a lost decade. I have gone nowhere really since you know, 2010. Bonds, in some cases on the duration side, have essentially had a lost decade on a total return basis. Do you think we might be in something like that in the U.S.? Lost decade. That's a tough question to answer because there's so many moving parts. Obviously, there's a lot of moving parts. But the number one thing that like, when I think about trying to forecast the next decade, I think it, has, it sort of has to start with where, where, how is the regime changing from the previous decade? And I think that most dominant feature of the previous decade, from my kind of, you know, quantitative economics background standpoint of view, is the fact that inflation persistently surprised to the downside and was persistently below the Fed's target. And that process allowed the Fed to maintain, and other central banks as well, to maintain some pretty radical monetary policy in the context of like long-term human history. You know, if you we're going to go back, we're going to study like the 2010s. It's like, well, holy cow, they actually did that. No wonder, you know, you know <laughs> no wonder people moon Tesla and Bitcoin and Dogecoin. Like, of course they did. What else were you, what else were you to do? I think that in terms of like trying to look forward to the next decade, you got to think about the regime shift from that. And our model saying inflation is going to consistently surprise to the upside, which ultimately means you might have a Fed that goes from perpetually supporting the market at every interval to perpetually kind of like fighting the market at every interval, kind of like how they're doing now, right? And so I think the probability that we see, you know, very kind of, you know, asymptotic asset market performance as a function of like just way persistently way too easy monetary policy is much lower on a go forward basis in this decade than it is in the prior decade. And again, you know, I don't have to say things like deglobalization and everything because that's already in the model. You know, I'm trying to break it down to its unit root. You know, and the model is already factoring in things like deglobalization, et cetera, rising commodity prices, et cetera, et cetera. You guys see, um, I'll actually just tweet out a, a picture of the model um, when I'm done with this. But so that model is already, con- you know, it's already con- you know, considering all those factors. And so when I boil it down, it's effectively saying it's going to be a lot harder for the Fed to moon liquidity in twenty in the next in the 2020s. And so it's, as a function of that, it's probably going to be a lot harder to see and make risk assets move the way they did in previous decades. So. I still sense a little bit of a behavioral recency bias amongst investors on Twitter, you know, just looking for any and every opportunity to get back long. You know, I think a lot of folks didn't really buy the 2020 COVID recovery as, as, as early as they should have, you know, and I wasn't one of those people. Um, but, you know, a lot of folks didn't really get into it as soon as they should have. A lot of folks bought Bitcoin in like March of 2021. And then it was kind of like the highs right before they got shaken out. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like I, I think a lot of folks are kind of looking backwards saying, I didn't make enough money in that time frame, and I want to go back to that. You know, Pop had a great uh, analogy a couple of weeks ago that, like, you know, we all in high school we have this like phenomenal rager of a party, or in college like this all time great party, and we always think about that party whenever we're going out. And it's like, how, how do we recreate that magic? But the reality is, you don't. You just got to deal with the party you have. This party sucks. <laughs> you really you really ended on a, on a, on a, a poor note for me no, no but listen again everybody please make sure you follow uh darius dale uh great conversation darius uh i know your your uh video with uh 
Adam Tagart coming out soon. I'm a big fan of Adam's as well. So I encourage everybody to check that out. It should be on YouTube, I think, tomorrow, right? Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, uh, I actually, I'm not going to tweet it out because I want to make sure everyone who actually participated to get this. The presentation that I go through with Adam Tagart tomorrow actually has that structural inflation model. So just make sure you go uh, not only you know review that presentation, watch it on YouTube, all that good stuff, but I actually gave him the link so you can download the presentation and go through the materials yourself. The structural inflation models on paid on slide seventy four. So you'll see that tomorrow. How many slides are there? Seventy four. Uh, every month we publish a hundred slide presentation that tries to you know kind of help investors understand the full distribution of probable economic outcomes and how they relate to our portfolio construction process. Uh, I'll use a term from the CFA level four. Well, shit, that's pretty impressive. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> appreciate you, bro. Yeah, no, thank you everybody for joining. Appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to be, uh, believe it or not, on somewhat of a vacation for a few days. So I will hopefully see all of you uh, next week when I resume these spaces. Thank you, Darius. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. Thanks, everyone, for joining. I really appreciate y'all. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.